in chapter 8, let me just kind of give you a quick little recap here. Last week, Jesus, or last time, Jesus fed the multitude. And Jesus has done this before, right? I mean, it's very similar to what he did before. What was the big difference? Who was he feeding? Gentiles. Gentiles. And it shows that Jesus has come not only to feed the Jews and to, to be the life-giving bread to the Jews, but for all humanity. Man, it's just such a big thing here. And so right after he leaves, he's, of course, cornered by the Pharisees and the scribes, and they say, well, then show us a sign. And they want this cosmological sign is what they're really asking for here. They want something specific that to show that he's the one who's come to deliver Israel, to rise up and become that political militant king. And we'll talk more about that uh, as we go as well. But Jesus is not going to give them that sign that they want. They're going to be given a sign, and we know it as the cross. Okay? But that's not the sign they were looking for. So there's been enough proof right I mean did Jesus really did he need to do anything else to say that this guy has to be from God I mean seriously I mean Jesus has done it. so they are spiritually blind and he often refers to them as being blind you think back okay because this is huge as we move into what happened and and we find last time when when Peyton talked that there was another group of people who were also blind who was it the disciples. D did they get the, the feeding of the 5,000 or the 4,000? They didn't get it. And, and Jesus even told them, he says, you're blind. You have eyes, but you're blind. You have ears, but you're deaf. And, and it's just, you know, so, so we see that um, uh, even even they, even though they were given some amazing things to see, Jesus walking on water and calming a storm and raising the dead, they still are not, they haven't seen him and recognized him for who he is. Okay? We've seen this. So that leads, what we're talking about here, these blind people leads to what happens next. And this is fascinating. Somebody read for us verses 22 through 26. Okay. All right. Well, first of all, I want to notice that the disciples finally make it to Bethsaida. If you, you remember that, after the first feeding, he puts them in a boat and he says, look, take off for Bethsaida. And where'd they end up? Gennesaret. But now they're there. Okay? But that's not really the important thing here, is it? This is not about a geology lesson. Um, so... So what is it that's puzzling? For me, this has always been one of the most puzzling miracles of Jesus. Is there anything here that puzzles you? Besides the fact that he spits on his eyes, right? Okay, so there's that. What else? Anything else stick out? Jesus... Jesus spits on the man's eyes, he touches him, is he completely healed? No. We haven't seen this before. This is strange. I mean, is Jesus having a lapse of power? Um, he's certainly done much bigger things, right? I mean, this doesn't seem like anything compared to those things. 
So maybe it's the man, right? Maybe this man lapsed in faith, but there's no mention of it. And for the man to be healed, it doesn't mention he needs to increase in his faith in any way, does it? And when we see something like this, and we see for the first time, by the way, Jesus asked the man, <laughs> he asked the person he's healed, well, did I heal you? I mean, he's asking, did you see anything? Do you see? Uh, he, he never has done this before. Um, and so this is the first time Jesus heals and, and it doesn't happen instantaneously. There is, a, there is really what we find a process to this man being healed. He first sees, you know, partially, but not in its complete form, and then he finally does. Folks, this is setting up as to what has just occurred. Okay? This is what has just occurred. What has been happening? He told them, look, you're blind. You're blind. You can't see. And now all of a sudden, Mark is wanting us to see this process. And I'll show you how this thing goes. Because what we have found is we have hit the dividing point of the Gospel of Mark. If you wonder, where is the divide? This is it. Because it's gone from all of these miracles and trying to show who he is, that he is the Christ and everything else, and, and then it leads to this gradual healing of the blind. And um, so that the disciples can understand that they can have true faith. Have they had true faith? Have they really understood who Jesus is? And again, we think about what, we, what was read the last time, and he says, you have eyes, but you do not see. Right? So the good news is that they can be made to see. But the only way they're going to be made to see is through the touch of Jesus. That's the only way they're really going to be able to see and to understand who Jesus is. And so what we find, and this is going to continue through Mark, and this is what we've seen so far, is there's no understanding of who Jesus is. Not a, in the true sense. And people are blind. And then we find, today, we're going to find this, there's misunderstanding. And this is why this miracle is set up the way it is. Because there's going to be partial sight. There's some elements that's going to be there, but not in its completeness. And then finally, there will be, and we won't see this today, um, complete understanding. And we find this complete understanding, of course, this is complete sight. And so everything is clear. But this last part's not going to be clear until the resurrection, okay? Jesus is helping them along. It's going to take some touch on his part. So let's move into this first touch in healing the disciples. Somebody read for us verses 27 through 30. Okay, so Jesus leaves Bethsaida, right? And he heads up to Caesarea Philippi. This is on uh, the edge of Syria. This is a place that was made up mostly of Gentiles. And it's also at the foot of this mountain range, what is known as Mount Hermon. And down here, you see, uh, this is Caesarea Philippi. And these are those, those great mountains. Um, this place had a really bad history for the Jews. 
really bad history. There was this guy by the name of um, uh, Antiochus IV. He defeated Syria. And this was around 200 um, B.C. And it, it opened up the way to the Seleucids. And it brought about the fall of Palestine. Okay? You're going to see how all of this is going to take place. But this is, this is that area. Um, this is also the area that um, after the Maccabean Revolt. You ever heard of the Maccabean Revolt? We've mentioned it before in here. Um, and during the Maccabean Revolt, there's going to be these wars between the Jews and the Gentiles. And uh, actually, the Jews, this is 167 uh, B.C., they're going to enjoy this time of, of um, um, 100 years of freedom, the, the Jewish people under the Maccabeans. So I mention all of this to say that this is a really pagan area. There in Caesarea Philippi, they worshipped, this was the place for the god Pan. He is part man, part goat, and fully creepy, right? Um, but there in Caesarea Philippi, there was this grotto. And this is the old look of Caesarea Philippi. Here's the grotto. And by the way, that, that opening there, there's, there's actually water behind there. That is known as the Gates of Hades. Guess where Jesus was when he said, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. And the Gates of Hades will not prevail, right? He's there. This is where he was, folks. This, this is, it, it just like to make a whole lot more sense. But we're not in Matthew. We're, we're in Mark, right? Um, this is what it looks like today if you were to go there. And in these, these three little things going down the side of the wall, this is where the god Pan, they had these things there in which they worshipped him uh, and everything else. And, and I point all that to say this. This is not exactly the place we would think that the disciples will finally say, we know who you are. This is not the surrounding, we would think, but that's where they were. That's where they were. And, and we also notice in the text, and this is an important phrase, it says, on the way. You see that? That's what the English Standard Version says. On the way. Nine times in the next, from chapters 8 through 12, we're going to find this phrase in the Greek and, and it serves as a marker okay or milestones whatever you want to call it here and and it, it's about where Jesus is heading where is Jesus what is he on the way to this is the break in the book come on somebody said it Jerusalem yes on the way to Jerusalem and what's gonna happen in Jerusalem yes there's going to be suffering, and there's going to be uh, death. There's going to be rejection. Uh, there's going to be, you know, all these awful things. If this is on the way, and when we see this on the way, there's a marker. And so here is one of, this is the first of the markers on the way. And, and, and this is where Jesus... Um, Jesus asked him questions. Now, this is interesting because normally disciples ask their rabbi questions. Jesus is not the normal rabbi, is he? 
And so Jesus asked some questions. And so what was one of his questions? Who do people say that I am? Let's start with that one. Who are the people? People outside of their circle, right? So who, and so what do they find? What were people saying? John the Baptist, Elijah, you know, one of the great prophets of old. I mean, we've seen this along the way, right? We're not, we're not, they're not telling us anything that we haven't heard so far as we've gone through Mark, but that's important because Jesus wants them to say, what is it everybody else is saying about me? And we need to understand the Jews were looking for a prophet like Moses who is going to rise up. And he's going to come and he is once again going to speak um, and declare God's word. So that's what they were anticipating. So we look at this and we say, well, Jesus is named among the people out there. This is, these are, historically, these are Israel's elite in their rich history, right? But can you define Jesus by even the greatest among the Jews? Jesus has to be defined of himself and also his relationship to the Father. So Jesus asked a second question. What was it? Who do you say that I am? Folks, this is the central question of the Gospel of Mark. It's very important we understand this question. The twelve had witnessed many things that other followers had not seen. We've mentioned some of those. They weren't there for the walking on water. They, these other followers, they weren't there for Jesus calming a storm. And not all, even all the apostles were there for Jesus raising that dead girl, right? I mean, we, you know, they're given some privileges. And if they're going to continue with Jesus on the way, they need to declare who they say he is. And Peter speaks up. And what does he say? Ha! Oh, yeah! Right? This is the Christ. Oh, can't spell. So he is the Christ. Does anybody know what Christ or the Christ means in Hebrew? Messiah. Very good. And what does it mean? Does anyone know the definition? Anointed one. Perfect. Um, so, anointed. Sorry. Uh, anointed one. That's the definition of this particular word. And it's like, yes. Yes. Folks, this is a big moment. Why is this such a big moment? Who's the only one so far up to this point who has declared Jesus' identity? The demons and the Father. And now finally, finally, these, these 12 that he has chosen, they're saying, you are the Christ. And then Jesus tells them what? <laughs> you finally get it. Hey, but listen, shh, don't tell anybody, Right? And this just boggles our mind because it's like, wait, isn't this, I mean, you want them to know this so they can now, and it, God's got a plan, and his plan's not, it doesn't always go the way we have it in our minds, right? That's a whole other lesson there. 
Um, but at least they finally get it, right? Or do they? Let's read verses 31 through 33. Whew, that escalated quickly, didn't it? Man, we went from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the mountain real fast. And, and uh, Jesus says, yeah, I am the Christ. But now let me tell you what that means. Let me tell you what that means. And it says here, for the first time, Mark tells us, Jesus spoke plainly to them. How had he been speaking usually when he talked? Yeah, parables, right? But he's saying, look, let me just spell it out for you. We need that as humans, right? We, we, are, we are so blind sometimes. And, and the strongest followers of Jesus, sometimes we just, it's like, God, just you're just going to have to tell me because I'm not getting this, you know? And, and so he tells them what? What does it mean to be the Christ? He must suffer, die, be rejected. All of these things here. And, and they were not prepared to hear what Jesus told them. Now my question to you is this, why? Why were they not ready for that? Yeah, it's going to go back to the glory of, of King David, right? And even Solomon, where the, it just continues to expand the empire. It's going to be a political, a militant, a militant type of kingdom that we see in our world, and we're going to rise up and be the most dominant kingdom, and they believe this is the way it was going to be. Now, for, for us to understand this and why uh, Peter does what he does, it's important to understand where they've been, Right? Um, when it says Jesus is the Christ, uh, those who were anointed, there were three groups in the First Testament. Who were they? Yeah, kings, prophets, who else? Starts with a P. Priests. Look at y'all. I'll just give you one letter. Y'all just jump all over it. So when we see those who are anointed, this is the three that we see. And it's this third one about a king and the anointed one that really began to take shape as far as the Jewish mindset, um, um, you know, as it continued. Because Second Samuel, Jesus says to David, he shall build a throne of his kingdom forever. There's one who's coming. Psalm 2, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. I will make the nations your heritage, and even uses the word Messiah or anointed there in, in Psalm chapter 2. And so they began to really build on this idea of who is this anointed king, who is this Messiah who is going to come. And, and it really took off in uh, 537 B.C. Does anybody know what happened? Babylonian captivity. Their kings were gone. They were waiting. There's prophecies about, you know, the one who is going to come, uh, Jeremiah even. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. It's like, yes, 
yes, this is, you know, this is finally going to take place. By the second century BC, um, this was after the Maccabean Revolt, uh, there was this, this line of Hasmonean kings during this hundred years. Well, by the, the second century, really along about the fourth, after Matthias, you go down and Alexandria, Salome, Aristobulus, and all. Along at that time, the Jews were really getting dissatisfied with these kings because they were not like God's kings. And they were really kind of, and, and if you notice there at the very bottom, um, this is it's from the Hasmonean dynasty. It leads into the Herod dynasty. So when we see the Herods, it came through this Hasmonean and so all along the way, you know, they're still looking for that, that king to arise. It, it, they know it has not happened um, as of yet. And it got even worse when uh, Pompey comes in. And this is uh, 63 A.D. And, and he captures Palestine, or captured Jerusalem, actually. And once again, they're like, the king's got to be coming. I mean, we got to be getting closer. And that is exactly the mindset when Jesus comes on the scene and he comes and he's teaching and he is saying he is, you know, th we're these words of him being the Messiah and all this kind of thing. They are thinking through all of these years from this time of captivity and it just continued to build and, and one of the Gospels, it may be Luke, uh, tells us that they were anticipating. They were, they were waiting for the Messiah to come. They were anticipating it, all right? So all of that's very important. So Peter is right with the title, but, but he's wrong in understanding what that Messiah, what the anointed one, was going to look like. And so he felt obligated to correct. Yes? Yes. Yes. Well, and, and why not think that this, this, this one can be the king? I mean, after the feeding, remember the first feeding? Um, you know, we find that the Jews, especially in other gospel accounts, they're ready to, they're ready to make him king. This guy's powerful. Uh, he is the one, the, you know, the one who is going to be holy, wise in the Holy Spirit, powerful in miracles. And he would come and he would destroy the enemies of Israel. So Peter, in saying what he says, and he rebukes Jesus. And, it, and you know, it, for us, we're like, oh, oh, Peter, you can't do that. But he really felt like he needed to correct him. It's like, you're not getting it. Now, how, how does Jesus react? What does he do? He rebukes Peter. You know why? Because he is opposing the very plan of God. Suffering was the only way for humanity to break from the grip of Satan and death. So what it meant to be God's anointed, it was scandalous. It was not a conquering king but a king who would do what? Suffer and die. And even though we understand, you know, now the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53, they, that was just not a part of their thinking as to Messiah. Yes? 
Well, sure. Yeah. Right? And had it not been for the, for the death and resurrection of Jesus, we're probably with Peter. I mean, we're, we are not thinking, you know, I bet the way we're going to conquer is by God coming down and taking on human form and just letting the enemy have their way with him. Right. Right. No. No. And, and, and here's the thing. Um, to show you just how much they did not associate as, as the Messiah being this, this messianic king, who does Jesus say is going to reject him and make him suffer and die? Look at the text again. Who is it? The elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. Who are those people? Not just Jews. Sanhedrin. This is the religious Jewish power, okay, among the Jews. And he says, they are the ones. All right, so we're not finished. Somebody read for us verses 34 through 38. Okay, this is really interesting. So he's been talking with the 12, and now he calls the crowds, the other followers, to come. He's like, I want all of you to hear this. You think this is for us too? Yeah, I think so. He's like, I want you all to hear what I am about to say. And what he's doing is he's giving the fine print uh, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Okay? To say I am a follower of Jesus, it means something. And, and he gives the fine print. And he gives two things. What's one thing? What? Yeah, deny self. What does that mean? What does it mean to deny yourself? Huh? Okay. That's one aspect of it. Yeah? Yeah, the word deny, just to look at it in its understanding, it means to refuse to recognize or acknowledge. And you're to refuse and acknowledge what? Yourself. Okay? It's an emptying of yourself. I'm not living for myself anymore. The other thing he says is do what? What's the other requirement? Take up your cross. Now we hear that and we're like, wow, that's powerful. How do you think they would have read that or heard that? Take up your cross. Think they'd have heard it a little differently? Listen, this was the Roman way of taking care of things. This was a very open way of squashing um, these slave rebellions. It was condemned criminals. It was the most visible way in which to do this. And this becomes important to us because, um, well, let me just back up a little bit. 71 B.C., um, there was this guy by the name of, of Crassius. He was a Roman general. And he defeated Spartacus. You're like, oh, I saw the movie, right? I don't know which version you saw. But, but yeah, this is the one. And if you know the story, when they squashed this, this slave rebellion, the Romans, they crucified 6 
thousand of his followers. And they didn't just, you know, do them one after the next in Rome. They placed them upon the most important road in, in really civilization at that particular point, the Appian Way. 6,000 crosses went on the Appian Road because they wanted people to see what happens to you if you rise up. Can you imagine going on this main road and you're just seeing one crucifixion, one person crucified after another? It was, it was awful, and that's the way they saw it. Um, and so a century later, this guy by the name of Nero, you ever heard of him? Uh, 64 AD, does anyone know what Nero did? And what did he do? He blamed the Christians, right? He blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome. And it was a false accusation, but he needed someone to blame, and that's who he blamed, and people were crucified. Now, get this. When this is written, Mark, Mark is, it is believed, I mean, this is the main thrust of what folks, people believe, that this was written to the Christians in Rome at the time of Nero. You take up your cross too. And you come and you follow me. And, and this just seems harsh, right? I mean, I mean, why would Jesus ask us to, to do that? I mean, isn't this why Jesus came so I wouldn't have to give up my life? And Jesus puts it in a chiastic form that we've talked about before. It's, it's a way for, you know, it's supposed to catch the eye. And so he says, uh, you know, whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever will lose his life will save it. You see the chiastic form. And so the word life and what you receive and what you lose is the condition of living or state of being alive, especially healthiness, happiness, exuberance, energy, vitality, and the life. Not just your physical life he's calling for here. He's also speaking of the soul, the very essence of a person. So why is Jesus telling us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross in this way? What happens when we safeguard our lives? That's when we start building bigger barns. That's when we uh, do things that we're destined to fail. That's when we seek ways to win the favor of others rather than pleasing God. And, and even if those things and having, you know, gaining the whole world, as it's kind of put here, even if you gain the whole world, what does he say? You lose everything. You lose the only thing of real value, and that's your soul. You lose what's, what's truly the eternity with the glorified Savior. And we have to ask ourselves, I mean, what is it? What temporary things in this world would we be willing to exchange for, for that? I mean, can we even place a value on our souls? And to drive this home, Jesus quotes from Old Testament prophets who accused Israel of their spiritual infidelity and their sinfulness. But we got one more verse, and then we'll close. Somebody read it for us. Chapter 9, verse 1. Really, that verse should go with what's above, but somebody read it for us.
Okay, he says, some of those standing here will see. What will they see? The kingdom of God coming with power. And, and for years, I really believed that this, had, this was, the, you know, Acts 2. This was the, the coming of the church. This was the power of the Spirit. And maybe it is. He doesn't give specific here. But I believe if you look at it contextually, and what Jesus just says, and what he's going, what's going to happen next. Oh, wait till we get into transfiguration next week, folks. Oh, man. Look, I believe what he's talking about here. You're going to see the power, the power of the resurrection of Christ. It's there that suddenly... They're going to get complete sight. They're going to get things where they've had this partial sight, this misunderstanding. As Peter, we've already seen it with him. They're finally going to get it. And it's going to come with the power. And that power is Jesus. And Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Uh, on the cross, Jesus is taunted by the Pharisees and the scribes. And they said, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may... See and believe. You see it? There it is again. Want to see. And what did they want to see? They wanted to see. Let's wait. See if Elijah will come and take him down. And yet, the one person at the cross who saw Jesus for who he was, do you know who it was? What? What did you say? Guy on the cross next to him? Who else? The centurion. Roman centurion. And it didn't happen when Jesus raised. It says when he stood facing, he saw that he took his last breath. Saw him at death, and he says, truly, this was the Son of God. How about that? And guess what happens when the power comes at the resurrection? Go send word. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where he laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. How? Just as he told you. See this. They are spiritually blind to this point. We've hit this, this, this centering of the book. And now they have partial sight. Like the miracle. Right? They've got, they're just seeing you know, people walking like trees and light. But at resurrection, the power, they're going to be given complete sight. You tell them, come and see, as I told you. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you would come and allow us to see you. Help us, Father. We believe in your resurrection. We believe in your death. We believe, Father, we could not do it of ourselves. But Father, we know that we still have things that we're seeing partially. That we allow our own backgrounds and our own, um, just our, our own cultures to, to not allow us to see your scriptures and to see your son as the way he should. And Father, just help us to grow and we thank you for your patience. But Father, help us to see. Help us truly to see you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, you're dismissed.